Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with Science and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is brought to you by StarCharge, the largest EV charging manufacturer in the world, and is also a provider of residential and commercial battery storage and microgrid solutions. And KimPower, the reliable, quick, and scalable EV charging solutions for everyone and everywhere. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Out of Spec podcast. I'm your host, Francie. This is my good friend, Max, part of the Out of Spec team. You run the Out of Spec guide channel for the most part, and of course, you sprinkle yourself throughout the other channels. Thank you for joining me this morning. How are you doing? Doing well, Francie. Thanks for having me on. And we're talking about a very exciting topic today, right? Yeah, we are, that you know a lot about. You know, you are a very good guru guide over on the Out of Spec Guide channel, of course. And the topic is, how can I, as someone wanting to take advantage of the tax credit incentives that exist, when if I'm going to buy an EV, whether it be new or used, how do I go about it? What information do I need? And how has it changed throughout time? Because I know that I heard, you know, in headlines that it was changing in 2024, but I'm not exactly sure how. So that's why I'm really glad you're here to kind of clear it up, walk through every every piece of information we might need and how it has changed from 23 to 24 and how I can really take advantage of any rebates, tax incentives that come my way when purchasing an electric vehicle or plug-in hybrid EV too. Yeah. On its face, you know, no one really likes talking about the IRS and their tax liability and things like, I don't imagine, unless you are a CPA or this is your thing. Uh, (laughs) But it's really important because when you're buying a new EV, right, we can stack tax incentives. And the federal one in particular has been such a big, I think, game changer for a lot of folks. It's literally a $7,500 value, potentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this year, it's realizable at the point of sale. So it's kind of like a discount, not technically, but mostly like a discount. And that's huge. Uh, that's really getting mm-hmm. a lot of people into newer electric cars. However, there's so many like asterisks and qualifications. And so that's what I'm happy to help somewhat clear up today, hopefully. Definitely. Yeah. So of course, I'll want you to break down a good bit of it. But before we get into the details, 
you know, from what has changed to 2023 to 2024, how do you feel the overall impact of these changes will be? Has it made it easier for folks to get EVs? Are the changes maybe harder for automakers, harder for consumers, or is it just really making it easier to embrace an EV lifestyle for everyone? Well, there's two sides to it. Like you were saying, it does, uh, where you suggest that it makes it harder for automakers because the way the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the legislation that kind of kickstarted this new clean vehicle credit works, is it's basically like getting stricter and stricter every year. And 2024 not only gets stricter from last year, 2023, for those of you keeping score, but it also uh, introduced this topic of like foreign entities of concern, uh, basically restricting batteries that come there from qualifying for the tax credit. And every electric vehicle needs batteries. A lot of those batteries are sourced from China or have critical components that come from China. And so it knocked a lot of vehicles out of the running for eligibility this year. But on the other hand, for consumers, the tax credit became more accessible because now, Francie, you can go to a lot of dealers or you can go to Tesla's website. And when you're buying an eligible model, like let's say a Tesla Model Y, you're able to get that $7,500 tax credit as like a discount on the point of sale. Uh, basically, you transfer your tax credit to the dealer or Tesla or whomever's selling you the car and they take it off the price. Uh, and that's great because before the way the tax credit worked is you'd have to do it when you were like filing your tax return. And it also meant that like, let's say you're like, you know, uh, I don't know, a lot of us working in media may relate to this or just anyone who's a student or retired, right? People who don't make a ton of income uh, and didn't have the full tax liability couldn't get that full $7,500 back because you needed to be owing $7,500 to get the credit. It wasn't like refundable. But in effect, mm-hmm. because of the way it works now, it is because uh, it's like a discount uh, if you choose to do it that way. So that's the exciting news for 24. Mm-hmm. And of course, like you said, you know, it's not just the end buyer that is considering this tax credit. But if your customers are going to be able to take advantage of it and you're the auto manufacturer, you're thinking about this, too. And like you said, there's a lot of pressure to essentially like bring a lot of the manufacturing to American soil, right? So can you tell me a little bit, it's $7,500. How does it break down? What is composing the $7,500? Because it's kind of a half and half thing, right? And I remember there were stories where like on some cars, you can get half of the credit or part of the credit and some you can get the full credit. So how does that play out? How does that work out? Yeah. So quick basic math here. You're right, France. It's two parts. And if we do 7,500 divided by two, it's 3,750. And each of those halves is comprised of a different thing, both of them relating to batteries. So the first, let's say 3,750 relates to critical minerals that make up the batteries. So we're talking about our aluminum or cobalt or manganese or iron, you know, the big boys that make up the, uh, that you essentially need to make these batteries. Then you've got the battery components. These are things like uh, well, we're talking about the anode and the cathode, the actual structure of the battery and the cells. It's kind of like a tier up, if you think of it, like the raw materials or the critical minerals and the battery components are a step up. So these represent two halves. And the reason some vehicles get half is because they may, for instance, have battery components that are totally fine and qualify for the tax credit. But the minerals to make those components are sourced from uh you know, not North America uh, or a trade partner or in 24, a foreign entity of concern knocking them out of the running. So this Mm. has kind of caused a lot of vehicle manufacturers to be, uh, I think, just embedded in like trying to understand the supply chain, trying to get documentation to prove to the IRS, hey, when we make these batteries, we're mining them here. 
we're sourcing them here. And as you can imagine, Francie, this gets kind of complicated because like not all of these vehicle manufacturers had uh, like 100% insight into their whole supply chain. And now they really have to uh, know it pretty well and they have to control it pretty well. And there's a lot of bottlenecks, frankly, with producing batteries in North America still. This is why um, I think you've covered this on the podcast and I'm sure you will continue to. A lot of affordable EVs uh, around the world aren't in the U.S. because the U.S. is frankly just lagging behind, especially China, when it comes to battery production. And so that's what Mm -hmm. this tax credit is kind of hoping to do. It's like, yes, it's a win for consumers, but it's also the government trying to incentivize domestic battery production. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've, um, I mean, you're right. I have heard a lot about this and seen the pressure and can, and have also seen the reaction from automakers trying to figure out exactly how they're going to do this to either take advantage of this kind of incentive or or not, but there's going to be more and more pressure to, like you said, just be not only really aware along the supply chain, but get innovative, maybe figure out where these sources are coming from and perhaps revamp the system. And this is a phased approach too, right? It's It will change over time. So in 2025, 2026, 2027, and thereafter, it's going to be changing as well. So it's going to be an ongoing phase in of more heavy and heavy uh, ratio of critical minerals and battery components that are sourced under certain requirements to take advantage of tax incentives. Am I right there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Thanks for uh, bringing that up. Uh, For those of you audio listeners, the document we're looking at kind of shows you that basically starting in 24, it's, for instance, 50% of, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 50% of critical minerals in 2024 have to be domestic sourced. That jumps to 60% in 25, 70% in 26, and so on. Similar story for battery components. So it basically just ratchets up every year, getting Mm -hmm. more and more stringent. And the idea of this is it's phased because, of course, these automakers can't do these things overnight. So we've already seen Mm -hmm. a response to this. Uh, We've seen, like, for instance, Kia uh, is building a very big plant, I believe in, oh God, I don't want to say this, it's somewhere in the South. I forget if it's Alabama or South Carolina. Apologies to our Southern viewers, but there's, or Georgia, it's in Georgia, my mistake. Uh, But there's, yeah, lots of these plants going on uh, in uh, states that are happy to have labor and a big industry going on in them. Um, And they're competing for uh, having these factories. It's really exciting. It's honestly big opportunity for U.S. industry. Like I was telling you, Francie, it's going to be challenging, but there's a lot of opportunity here because this represents a potential huge domestic industry. It represents some vitality and revival, hopefully, of auto industry jobs, which, um, you know, if we've been following the news last summer with the unions and all that, um, there's a lot of turbulence right now. So hopefully a battery industry can help uh, really strengthen the U.S. supply chain and just increase U.S. labor involvement in making vehicles. Because a lot of people are worried that, oh, electric cars don't require as much labor. Well, turns out they do need batteries and you need a lot of resources and a lot of people to make those batteries. So we've seen automation a response to that. We've also seen Tesla try to um, basically even uh, more strongly increase their domestic presence. So Tesla makes a lot of their batteries still uh, in China with partners like BYD, 
or CATL. And I believe what they're doing next year, 2025, they're hoping they'll lay the groundwork for a plant with CATL that will be run by Tesla with the machinery being provided by CATL to make the lithium iron phosphate batteries they currently put in like the base Tesla Model 3, uh, very important high-selling vehicles. So, uh, yeah, long story short, you're going to see a lot more domestic investment as a result of this, and I think that's really exciting. I think it's really exciting, too. And um, you mentioned that, yeah, we have this document pulled up. It's from the Congressional Research Service, which is informing the legislative debate since 1914. But it is all about the clean vehicle tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act, Act of 2022. That was, you know, enacted in 2022, but carries forward. So we'll have all of this linked in the show notes, of course, everything that we reference here. But um, this is all public information. But sometimes it's hard to break it down, which is why we're here. And you bring up a good point that, you know, this is going to put pressure on different parts of the industry and also create opportunity, of course. And I've just also seen that we're going to try to manufacture the batteries. And then, of course, what happens at the end of life, recycling and the movement there, which we'll continue to cover on the podcast. But that's a little bit of a tangent. So how about we continue on breaking down the EV tax credit? We've kind of gotten an idea of how this affects the industry and the really the the global industry, the global market at large. So now it, like we said, it can be obtained at the time of purchase, which is new. And then how I know that it has something to do with MSRP, right? So how do how does it qualify in terms of MSRP? How inexpensive does my EV have to be for me to get a tax break? Yeah, so this is interesting, and it's contentious, as you can imagine. Uh, the prior <laughs> incarnation of the tax credit, like before the Inflation Reduction Act, I don't think it had a price cap. Uh, so there was a lot of criticism of like, hey, why are we subsidizing people buying Porsche Taycans uh, with a clean vehicle credit? I think a lot of people sure. were taking issue with that. Fair enough. So the way the current tax credit works is there's like two thresholds to qualify. There's the consumer has to qualify with income, which we'll get into, but also crucially the vehicle to qualify has to be under a certain MSRP. And there's two classes of vehicle. And this is where I think things get controversial and where I take a little bit of issue with the way the tax credit is structured. But basically, they say if you're a sedan or like a normal car, which in the US nowadays, when you talk about new car sales, are actually a minority, but like, let's say what you traditionally think of as a car, Tesla Model 3, a Hyundai Onyx 6, Polestar 2, in gas world, Honda Civic, Toyota Corolla, normal cars. Those can have an MSRP of $55,000. Uh, so that includes all the options that they have, not software packages though. So for those of you uh, living in the future using Tesla full self-driving beta, that doesn't count. Uh, so you can exclude the 12 grand from that. But all of the like options that would ship on the car as a dealer have to be under 55 grand. If the vehicle jumps over that, then you'll lose uh, the eligibility uh, for the tax credit. This doesn't include taxes, of course, and some sales tax is exempted from this. However, if you're getting a Rivian R1S, if you're getting a Cybertruck, um, if you're getting any vehicle that's an SUV or a truck, uh, or I think minivans too, but basically like larger vehicles as we think of them, they have a higher price cap of $80,000, which is a bit more generous. And so 
as a result, you had a situation that doesn't exist anymore because the Tesla Model 3 doesn't get the tax credit. Uh, but let's pretend we were in last year. The Tesla Model 3, if you get a performance model, at some point, those were like getting to be $56,000, dollars And that was awkward because that meant they would be over the tax credit. Whereas if you bought a Tesla Model Y, those were comfortably under eighty grand, meaning they easily get the tax credit. The reason I take issue with this and the reason I think a lot of people find this uh, controversial is because it basically is incentivizing people to get larger vehicles or it's making it a lot Mm. easier to qualify for larger vehicles. Like, look, no question, an SUV or a crossover costs a little bit more to make than a smaller car. Nonetheless, it's not that much more. So kind of like if you get into the nerdiness of like corporate average uh, fuel emissions and other legislation, I think basically the government is just throwing a bone to big vehicles uh, unnecessarily. And in my opinion, Mm. maybe in just kind of over incentivizing them. Uh, and I don't love that, at least as, you know, one of those people in the minority who still likes smaller vehicles. Uh, so I don't know, that's just the way it works. But basically, if you're buying an SUV, you have a much more generous price cap. Uh, vehicles like the Rivian R1T and R1S will still skirt this. So people have to be careful with the options they add. Because if those vehicles get to be above $80,000, right, you suddenly just lose that tax credit. All right, a quick break from today's episode to thank our sponsors, Climate Exchange, for sponsoring today's video. I am excited to share this basically dream of mine for you to possibly win a fully customized electric vehicle while supporting a nonprofit working on climate policy. This is Climate Exchange's eighth raffle, and there's less than a month left to enter, so definitely hop on this. Other online raffles might give you a few vehicle options, but nowhere close to this one. Their grand prize winner can choose any fully customized EV worth up to $112,000. This is the price of a fully loaded Tesla Model X Plaid. So if a car on our show, any of the out-of-spec channels has caught your eye, now is your chance to drive home in it. Plus, they make the process really easy. They cover all the taxes, they pay for home charging, and they'll work with you to design and order your dream car. Plus, they also have cash prizes, so you can take home possibly two, three, five, or $10,000. Tickets have sold out for the past three years, so definitely don't miss out on getting yours right away. No matter what, your purchase is going towards a great cause. Climate Exchange is a nonprofit, and they're working very hard to help states pass policies that fight climate change, something that I take very seriously. That's the whole reason they're running this raffle. They know that EVs play a key role in reducing pollution and the proceeds from this raffle help fund their important work. You can buy tickets at www.carbonraffle.org or just go to the show notes and click the link in the description. Sales end on February 27th and the winners will be drawn on February 29th. A great way to celebrate the leap year. And now back to the show. Mm. That's an interesting point. And I mean, I've seen a little bit of a shift towards bigger EVs too, which are inherently more expensive and take up more space in our world when I'd love to see a bit more emphasis on micromobility. So, but that is a a really interesting part of it where it's not black and white and doesn't always, it, it, it leaves room for question, which we love to do over here. And then something else that has changed is which models are eligible. So if if we kind of look at the lists from previous years compared to 2024, the list is a bit shorter, wouldn't you say, Max? Yeah, it's been called down quite a bit. And it's actually ballooned since the beginning of the year, like the Volkswagen ID4 lost it this year, but gained it back. So the reason for this wasn't really the jump in battery uh, in critical minerals and components. It was the foreign entities concern. Manufacturers all of a sudden, Francie, had to really quickly prove 
our batteries don't involve foreign entities of concern. Um, so that was a process, and it's ongoing. Uh, for instance, the GM General Motors Ultium vehicles, like the Chevy Blazer EV, which I think has a stop sale at the moment, but uh, let's ignore that. The Cadillac Alaric, vehicles <laughs> like that that had the tax credit suddenly lost it, and they still don't have it. So GM has said, oh, we're working on getting it back. Similar story for a few other vehicles. Uh, you still mm. get it, weirdly enough, for plug-in hybrids. A lot of people forget the plug-in hybrids get the tax credit. So I think the Chrysler Pacifica minivan with the plug-in hybrid option or the Jeep like Wrangler 4xE and Cherokee 4xE, I think those still have it. So some plug-in hybrids actually get the full tax credit, which is kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, a lot of vehicles fancy this year lost it, including the Tesla Model 3 largely because of that foreign entities of concern. So nowadays, Francie, that puts uh, at least Tesla buyers in a very weird position. And I have an out-of-spec guide video coming about this where the Tesla Model Y, what you think would be a larger, more expensive, you know, slightly more practical vehicle, is actually cheaper than a Tesla Model 3 when you factor in the tax credit because the Model 3 lost it. Mm. Yeah, it can totally change what you see at surface level when you start to factor all these incentives in and might completely change what you thought you were going to take advantage of because a cheaper car and more space in terms of the Model Y. I can see how that would shift folks' ideas. And um, yeah, I think we're going to continue to see the list change as automakers try to change with the very or the stricter and stricter requirements as they get stricter and stricter or more specific every year so we'll just kind of have to watch how they how they manufacture their evs and what will or phevs and how they'll be available so kind of a reduction in the eligible models and this foreign entities is definitely a huge part not always the critical components but all the different pieces moving there and you can access through the fueleconomy.gov website, which will have linked which federal tax credits for plug-in electric and fuel cell electric vehicles are available. They have luckily a list here so that you can navigate that yourself and you can determine this based on when you plan to take delivery. So, I mean, of course you can't really do it in the past, but you can see the differences and how they've changed from the end of 2023 to the beginning of 2024, which is where we are now. So are there other, so of course we're talking about the federal tax incentive, but there's others that we can consider too, right? Like Colorado has their own state incentives. Have you seen that states, I mean, California, of course, too, are taking this initiative generally, or do you think it's kind of more slow rolling that the federal one will be something that's present for a while, but states will take a second to incentivize this? Uh, it's really a case-by-case case or a state-by-state state basis. So where I am in Colorado, they, there's a pretty generous credit that applies. It's a $5,000 credit whether you're buying, financing, or leasing. As long as the vehicle's in Colorado, it doesn't have to meet any of the you know strict domestic battery stuff that the U.S. one does. It's straight up an MSRP cap. So as long as the vehicle is under, uh, I think, $80,000 generally, it doesn't matter if it's a sedan or a CV, Colorado will give you that. California I believe has another one. Uh, they also crucially like have a HOV option. So in California, I believe this is still the case. You can opt to either get a discount, I think a couple thousand dollars from um, California DMV, 
or you can get an HOV sticker, crucially, for your EV, and this is a prized commodity. My uncle, for this reason, he lives in the Bay Area, bought a plug-in hybrid just to be able to have that sticker, made his commute to work a lot easier. So that's a big prized commodity in California that people can elect to do. So states are finding different ways to do incentives. I think in New Jersey, um, EVs are exempt from sales tax, so it's different state-by-state basis. Um, In addition, though, to states, there's also municipal incentives. So like XL Energy in Colorado will give buyers a rebate on buying an EV as well as installing home charging equipment, uh, which is really nice. So lots of utilities are really interested in that. And it's pretty, uh, you know, nakedly self-interest for them, but it's good for everyone, right? Because the utilities are glad that you're getting an EV because it's like, cool, you're not going to be going to the gas station. You're going to be paying us more money for every kilowatt hour you put into it. So yeah, go ahead, get that EV. Um, So it's nice that there's at least a diversity of sources people can look towards, towards getting it. Um, But yeah, every state's different. I know some people complain like, I don't know, I live in such and such state and I have terrible incentives for EVs. It's a shame. And there's other cost EVs that, you know, we can explore in other podcasts, like potentially mm-hmm. higher insurance premiums and other things that maybe make it make is not as much financial financial sense for people. So I think people should just look beyond the federal tax credit and look at the bigger picture. We cover it a lot. Mm-hmm. It's in national media uh, because it's an easy topic, right? We can make a video about it, whether we're in Tennessee or Illinois or Colorado, and it applies to everyone. And that's exciting. But there's all these other local things to consider as well when someone's getting an EV. So the bigger picture is important to think about. Um, I do also want to still talk about uh, things with a federal tax credit relating to people's income and uh, the leasing aspect of it, because mm-hmm. those are also interesting, Francie. Those are very interesting. Yeah, let's hop into those. And I, I just love also how knowledgeable you are about this and would love to continue covering it. And it does remind me of, um, you know, the, the ice bands that we're seeing where states are going to put more and more pressure on new vehicles being sold, being electric, like California, for instance, has a really high standards and other states are adopting them. So it is state to state. Of course, what we're going to be seeing, the federal layer is just one layer and states also have their own initiatives. But yeah, let's jump into gross income for households. So I know that just to like not every EV model is eligible at different MSRPs or based on their components. Also, not all folks are eligible based on their income. So how is that broken down within the tax credit rules? Yeah, so it's this concept of adjusted gross income. So that's your gross income before taxes cannot be at a certain threshold uh, or above that to get the tax credit. So depending on your filing status, I think the current like uh, requirements are if you're filing as a single individual, your income can't be above $150,000 if you're the head of household. $200,000. And if you're a married couple filing jointly, $300,000. Uh, so if you're above those income caps in any way, you can't get it on your tax return. And nothing's actually stopping you, France, interestingly, from taking it at a dealer or from Tesla, because uh, they don't really, they're not really responsible for checking that. So you can get mm-hmm. the rebate. However, the IRS is completely within its right to pursue recapture in that situation if you're over those income caps. And a lot of people, I think, I don't know, got very, I've seen some comments that people like, oh, well, no one's checking, so I can just get away with it. Maybe, but you also may be subject to the IRS wanting that money back, uh, potentially with penalties and interest. So I would watch out for that if you're worried at all about being on the threshold of, the, of uh, those caps. 
Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Where does the responsibility lie to make sure that folks are taking advantage in the ways that they are supposed to? Uh, Very interesting for sure. And then, of course, the what I've heard called a bit of a loophole with the leasing, Max, how is this broken down? Because, of course, you want to be careful with your income threshold, you know, don't want the IRS following up with you. But this loophole, is it as sneaky as it sounds? Uh, It kind of is, yeah. So if you lease a vehicle, you don't own the vehicle. The lease company, or typically the financial arm of the automaker you're leasing the vehicle from, is the one who owns that vehicle in their fleet. So when they get the clean vehicle credit, they're not getting the one that you or I get, Francie. They're getting the commercial commercial vehicle clean credit. And like many things in this country, if you're a business or if you're enterprise or if you're commercial, you have a bit looser requirements. So for the commercial credit, you don't have to worry about the battery sourcing at all. There's still the price cap to consider, but as long as it's you know under $8,000 or if it's a sedan under $55,000, um, the vehicle manufacturer, let's say Hyundai, is losing you an Ionic 5. They're going to get $7,500 as a clean vehicle credit when they put that vehicle into service as a lease. And what many of them have elected to to do, though not necessarily, they don't have to, is say, hey, we get the $7,500, that's sweet, we can at least follow up as an incentive for the consumer and take that off their lease payment. So that results in lower monthly payments because we're uh, passing that on to the consumer in effect through the lease. They don't have to do this. Some vehicle manufacturers have decided, oh, cool, we'll we'll just pocket that money. Uh, They don't have to pass it on to you, but most have because it just lets them advertise a more competitive lease price. And this is how, Francie, uh, for instance, I know your uh, lovely spring roll, your VinFast, uh, that's part of the reason it is such an affordable lease. Mm-hmm. That is true. And I think if you are going to compete with, for example, Tesla's competitive pricing, finding ways that these tax incentives can not only, you know, of course, like you said, they could pocket it, but to get customers in your door to buy your EV, over our competitors, this is a way that that could really come in handy. And of course, there's the great option of used EVs. We don't all have to buy new. That's definitely not the only option. There are a great variety of used EVs on the market, and I can take advantage of tax credits as well there, can't I? You can. However, it's a little more strict in some ways, like the income we just talked about. I think it's halved for all those amounts. So as a single filer, it's $75,000. Married couple, hundred fifty dollars So it's a bit stricter. It's targeted, I guess, at still lower income folks who are buying cheaper used vehicles. It's also, Francie, a little in some ways stricter and in some ways laxer on the vehicle front because It's considering the fact that these are vehicles that have already been in service for at least two years. So, Francie, there's no concern about the vehicle having to have a domestic battery. Uh, They ignore that. However, the price cap on the vehicle is very strict. It's 25 grand, which, you know, it's not that's not no money, but it's a lot stricter than that 55 grand cap on new vehicles. So um, it's becoming an important threshold because if the vehicle is under 25 grand, the amount of this used credit is up to $4,000. That's, yeah, it's kind of interesting because to me, it seems like it would benefit everyone to buy a used EV. You know, like all the resources and pressure that goes into the creation of new ones uh, really incentivize the used ones. But I think that's important to note because it is a good option and how that differs definitely from the new EV or 
plug-in hybrid tax credits. Is there anything, you know, ranging from the critical components, the foreign entity aspect, the MSRP, the income, whether it's new or used, your state credit or your state taxes, is there anything else that you think it would be really important for folks to keep in mind when thinking about the 2024 EV tax credits? Max. Well, there's a few edge cases to consider. So one of the biggest misconceptions people have is now that, you know, as we outlined at the beginning, you can do point of sale for the tax credit, whether it's the new or the used tax credit, you can have, as long as the dealer is involved with the IRS, you can have them discount the car effectively. That's not discounting the price of the car uh, reported at sale. So you're still paying sales tax on that full amount, including mm. the $7,500 that you know was taken off. So you're not paying the $7,500, but it could be like a couple grand difference depending on the vehicle you're buying in the sales tax difference. So it's important to consider that if someone's you know uh, you know stretching their budget. And then on the used vehicle credit, which we were just mentioning, you don't necessarily get $4,000. You get 30% or $4,000. Um, Whichever is, you know, whichever is the uh, whichever larger, comes first. yeah, whichever comes first, basically. So if the vehicle is like twelve grand, you are not necessarily going to get four thousand dollars. You'll get thirty percent of the sales price, as long as it's mm-hmm. above. I think my math is, if, if it's right here, as long as it's somewhere like fourteen thousand dollars or more expensive, you are going to get four thousand dollars. But um, twenty five grand is becoming this really interesting threshold because now, right, Hertz has uh, sold a lot of their. Tesla Model 3 inventory. Mm-hmm. You've got Chevy Bolt still in the market. So these vehicles that can squeeze under $25,000 suddenly become a lot more appealing because all of a sudden you can get the $4,000 rebate. Now, I really want to hear about cases like you can, I, I can already imagine that dealers could, um, you know, see money here and tell the consumer, hey, we're going to sell you the vehicle, but we'll maybe force these like other items that we can somehow take off the vehicle price, I don't know, floor mats or something in a different transaction, but the vehicle price will be under 25 grand, so you'll get the four grand back, so it makes no difference to you. Uh, And in that case, the government is just subsidizing uh, dealers doing what dealers do best, which is make money. Uh, And so that is an interesting, I don't know, maybe abuse of it to consider. I'm curious what people think of that. But um, I think there's still a lot of room to play, like wiggle room here. Uh, And so consumers should just, I don't know, keep that in mind, that this is not like an ironclad, simple discount. There are edge cases to consider. There is potential for abuse. um, And there is also that potential if you are a higher income earner of getting the tax credit when you shouldn't have claimed it and then having to be on the hook to pay it back. So there's all kinds Mm -hmm. of uh, little things like that that I think people should keep in mind. That's that's really a good point. You know, no matter how black and white we try to lay it out to be informative, there are edge cases. It is complex and it's not necessarily, I mean, I think folks can have a lot of opinions about how this is implemented and whether it's exactly, you know, the perfect way to do it. I doubt we'll ever have a perfect way to do it. I do wonder what you think the ripple effects will be going forward. Obviously, clearly more restrictions on where we're sourcing and how we're manufacturing our vehicles today and into the future. Do you see any other effects for whether it's those buying the vehicles? I mean, the global market at large, what do you see happening in the future, Max, with tax incentives and their effects? 
Um, well, you know, I uh, mentioned this a bit earlier, but the uh, incentives to build factories and domestic battery production is now pretty strong in the U.S. And it's not even like a, it doesn't have to be a direct relationship. There's all kinds of interesting games that manufacturers have played. I know you've discussed this on the podcast, Francie, but for instance, like Volvo in selling the Volvo EX30, that is an affordable crossover that is produced in China that they're importing to the U.S. And normally Volvo not only doesn't just get to offer the tax to consumers. They don't get to do that. They also have to pay, or they would have to pay, a 25% tariff on the price of the vehicle, mm -hmm. which would make it really hard for them to keep it affordable. However, because Volvo has a South Carolina facility producing the Volvo EX90 and the Polestar 3, um, they're able to do what's called the duty drawback program and basically say, oh, we're selling a $90,000 SUV and exporting it internationally. That means that we can import $90,000 worth of goods. That could be two or two and a half Volvo EX30s. We can import those into the U.S. with no tariff. So there's all kinds of interesting dynamics here where hopefully this increases not only the presence of like domestic battery and domestic EVs in the U.S. market, but the influence of the U.S. overall. Because the U.S. overall right now is not that big of a player in EVs. We're both on the demand and the supply side. We are really rapidly falling behind. So I think there needs to be more work done. A lot of it falls to the private sector, but it's good to see that the government is trying to do its best with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, as we've pointed out, I think there's imperfections in the law. There's a lot of confusion. Uh, there's ambiguity. Uh, it, we're, I, it's going to be challenging for manufacturers to comply, but I, I'm of the opinion personally that it moves us in the right direction, and I'm just hoping to see more and more aggressive investment in this because otherwise we're going to really rapidly continue to fall behind China, um, especially, and lots of Europe in EVs. I, I, I agree. I think that this kind of incentive strategy, however you want to describe it, has the potential to create great opportunities if we want to take advantage of them and to make EVs more accessible to drive down the prices because if we don't continue competing, then, uh, you know, how are we going to match up with what the what the global market is doing? China EVs or EVs made in China can be very affordable because they've got the whole system internally. So we'd love to know the audience's opinion as well. I think that this is going to be interesting to watch to see how the federal government continues on, maybe, you know, continues to alter this, improve it with learned lessons, and then how states begin to adopt their own tactics as well when it comes to EVs and getting more and more in the hands of everyday people. And of course, how this happens at large in larger industries from construction to fleets to whatever it is. And just, of course, the EV evolution revolution as well. Thank you, Max. I feel far more informed than I did at the beginning of this podcast. So I really appreciate it. I hope our audience does too. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully people's ears aren't, aren't bleeding from too much talk about legislation <laughs> and all of the exciting nit picky details of the IRA, but happy to um, regurgitate all the stuff that I've been uh, that I've been telling people on guide as well uh, and just absorbed in. Uh, I hope, you know, you don't have to retain all this knowledge uh, to any of you watching or listening, but it's really important when you are in the market for an EV. So keep this in mind. Uh, and also one more thing, look out this year for more vehicles, hopefully getting eligibility, because as we explored on fueleconomy.gov, Francie, the pickings are pretty slim at the moment. I'm hoping they'll expand a little bit throughout the year. 
Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think there's room for improvement, but not much room for improvement for you over on the Out of Spec Guide channel. You're pretty great. You're obviously very well informed. And um, thank you for being so articulate and laying this out. And definitely, like Max said, you don't have to commit this to memory. You can go over to the Out of Spec Guide channel, stay up to date on the podcast and follow along. We'll try to keep everyone informed with these interesting topics. And if this I think this is informative and interesting. So thank you again, Max. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into the Out of Spec podcast. Let us know what questions you might have or, uh, you know, if you've had to navigate this yourself. would love to know the story of how you found an incentive that really worked for you, whether it be at-home charging or buying the EV itself. We'd love to hear it. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into the Out of Spec podcast. We will see you next time on the next episode. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.